it's October 17th, 2018. This is Acacia Thompson for the Greenpoint Oral History Project with Brooklyn Public Library, Our Streets, Our Stories. I'm here on Collier Street with Catherine Thompson. Hello, Catherine. Hello, Acacia. <laughs> so how long have you been in Greenpoint? We moved to Greenpoint in 1996. Um, we'd been in Long Island City for 10 years before that in a loft. And I was pregnant with my third child and my landlord, who I really liked a lot, this you know, kind of a wacky Greek immigrant man. Uh, you know, he told me I couldn't stay. I, I, I had to. It just wasn't right. You know, he wasn't going to allow it. And I don't think we our loft was legal, and it had a lot of problems with leaks and you know stuff. Um, so, anyways, we started looking around for where we belonged. Um, we have two other kids, so we had started sending our littler our children to the Greenpoint Y. Um, and so we had met a bunch of families there, but we didn't know where we belonged, so we looked everywhere. Um, we looked up along the Hudson, in Hastings on the Hudson, and Croton, and we found that we it, to afford to live in that sort of area, um, you know, we'd have to live really far away, and Dewey would be commuting along really far to get to work, um, and so we didn't want to do that. We looked, you know, just kept looking, and then we looked in Greenpoint. Um, we'd met Trina McKeever, who you know, and her, our boys had become really good friends. We both have uh, boys born a week apart, and they'd met in the preschool. And so we started looking in Greenpoint, and, you know, we ended up finding this house, and it just timely, so we moved here. Right. And how has it been raising children in Greenpoint? Raising children in Greenpoint's been great. Um, right within our little block radius, you know, from Callier, and you loop around Guernsey onto Oak, which is Oak is almost like a little cul-de-sac. There are several families with children all sort of lined up. I do. Um, all lined up um, with our same age group. And we all went to the Y, and we all had three or four kids. Um, there's another family a few blocks away. And it was interesting, the boys, girls, you know, the, the birth order and the gender sort of lined up perfectly. So it was quite a nice little gang um, of kids just right here. Um, kids could run outside, you know, you know when they were old enough. Um, you know, we'd tell the babysitter that, where the mom that you know the child was coming over and so they started out you know having quite a lot of independence um Dewey and I uh started we founded the North uh the Greenpoint Williamsburg Youth Soccer League because Dewey had brought Elliot our eldest over to Park Slope to play soccer and he was immediately sort of recruited by default to become a coach because the coach never showed up for their um, ASO league um, that team that he was on so Dewey was sort of a de facto coach and then we realized that our neighborhood had nothing for kids at all and our parks were deplorable so we um, just started having like informal like fun kids getting together kicking the ball I'd take the kids after school to McCarran actually McCarran was so yucky we started, um, there was a little grassy plot right next to Automotive High, and the uh, folks at Automotive High would let me bring these um, little preschoolers in there to, you know, kick the ball. Because <laughs> it's the only green, green plot of uh, grass in the whole neighborhood that was sort of, you know, clean without, you know, glass and everything else in it. So... Anyways, we um, got together a bunch of families, and we uh, founded the North, uh, the Greenpoint Williamsburg Youth Soccer League, which was an ASO league, uh, organization as part of an, um, a large national organization. They do a lot with training. Um, we had to go to all kinds of training sessions in Philadelphia or these big, um, you know, it was, it was a big commitment. Um, you know, it's all volunteer, so it was before the internet, so 
everything was done with the sort of carbon copy papers on the registration. But it was neat because we really wanted to involve everybody. The, one of the slogans or the mottos of the organization is everyone plays. And we wanted it to be and it, it to be affordable, but also have access. So we would spend a lot of time over on the south side, and that's where I met people from Los Ores and Los Ni uh, Nosotros Niños and El Puente, and we would have um, in-person, you know, soccer registrations over there. You know, because they didn't have the internet, everything had to be done in person. So, you know, we, you know, my my uh, registration team and I would go over there and get that. Then we'd have to divide up, you know, the teams, but like the paper, you know, and <laughs> face to face though. Yeah, it was face to face, and um, the coaches needed to be trained, the refs need to be trained. So it became this real neighborhood, you know. Uh, you know, investment and time and families. People really liked it. So then the next step became, well, our parks are horrible. Where we played um, in McCarran, the oval there was um, just rubble. It was a dusty um, heap of little stones and glass and rubble. <clears throat> um, so, but we would also, we, we would try to play there, but we would play in the outfields of the little baseball diamonds, which um, was incredible because every weekend we had to draw the lines. I don't know if you play soccer with your kids, but each soccer field has its own um, lines, and they could be any size. The nice thing about soccer is it's not, you know, very regimented in, in that, so you can make a pitch anywhere, but we would have to get the chalk and draw the lines every week before the games because the, they were basically being drawn on dust and dirt and it would just blow away. They were not permanent and you couldn't put down permanent like ribbons. So that was one part of just playing on Saturdays. Then we had to assemble all the goals. We had to drag the goals out in these big bags and they were kept in my house and we'd have to drive them to the fields we'd have to get you know the the people to help put all these goals together it was like doing some sort of you know intelligence test where you had to fit the pieces and you know there were special people who had designated just to label them so that they were user-friendly you know like left right of the yellow you know upper corner and so there's you know each goal probably had I don't know eight pieces that had to be assembled so now we've drawn the lines we've assembled the goals you know <laughs> then we had to and I would go out there on Fridays and try to fill up the holes you know because there were all these like you know divots in the field and kids could fall in them and trip um, and I'd try to pick up and rake up the glass and all kinds of stuff. I remember one year the Parks Department tried to fix the fields by putting down sod. You know, they put laid down in the, in the outfields of the baseball diamonds, but what happened was <laughs> the sod, it turned out, had been backed by this weird plastic netting that would work its way up to the surface so you'd have these weird tumbleweeds of plastic netting kind of growing out of the dirt and so i'd have to go around with a pair of scissors and cut this netting because otherwise it was a perfect booby trap for you know it's so crazy uh, so so the soccer league was really neat it made so that we met, you know, every family, you know, it just seemed like all the families um, would participate. Um, and each year the soccer league would grow. Um, we'd have to add more teams eventually. And it was all co-ed because there weren't enough kids to have separate boys and girls teams. Eventually, though, we started having some girls teams because it became, you know, evident and, you know, people advocated for that too. There were enough girls, one, and two, it showed that um, first they just started having girls' teams that would actually play against the boys' teams because the girls like playing together. Um, and 
often I don't think that the girls were treated by the boys that well on the team as teammates. So they weren't as much of team players. They've done a lot of studies on girls. So anyway, so the girls had their own teams. And then anyway, so we did that for 12 years. That was a long time. <laughs> and Dewey was the commissioner. That's my husband. Um, it was very hard to get the, a transition out of it, but it was it was good. You know, you sometimes when you start organizations or you're sort of in charge, everybody just assumes, you know, things happen and they don't. And it's very hard to extricate yourself um or who knows why it is i mean but it should be built into organizations but it's a little tricky when you start one and you're you know you know how everything works you know everybody just assumes you can do it all and you also are invested and you're worried you may not trust the next person to do it well or you know whatever so it's interesting had a lot of experience with that yeah (laughs) so there is that part. Um, so how did that lead to your advocacy for open space? Oh, well, I was telling you about these parks. So the first, one of the first things that we worked on, um, but that was sort of for the soccer league, was to improve the, and um, create more soccer fields in the neighborhood. Um, so, because every year, like I was saying, we get more teams, more kids wanted to play, and there was very limited space. And there's also this permitting stuff that goes on that's very complicated. And um, so yeah, so we got the uh, so they re- renovated the oval in the McCarran Park, which was great. And then um, they also did. Um, build soccer fields down on the waterfront uh, at BIP and so that was and then you know as as the waterfront master plan was evolving back in 2005 I know that um, you know we advocated to have more fields for um, kids sports you know in this neighborhood it tends there tends to be kind of a division I, I don't know maybe I'm this isn't true but I think it's true that you know, there's people who want passive space, and then there's people that want um, active space. You know, there's lots of people who play games and sports, and there's nowhere. I mean, grown-ups can go to other neighborhoods and play, but it's harder for kids. Kids can't just go, you know, to Red Hook and play games unless somebody drives them or you're, they're old enough to take the subway. So, um, Well, how did you get involved with friends of Bushwick in the park okay so I you know had the three kids I was very involved with the soccer league but I was also very involved with PTA stuff so I was on the PTA for you know I, I realized like 20 years <laughs> Acacia you're don't a, faint you're a doer. <laughs> well I'm sure you are too <laughs> yeah it's pretty impressive though it's a long time yeah, well, it was like three kids, elementary, middle, and high school. Yeah. Um, but it was my youngest senior year, high school, and I just couldn't I just couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> I was like, I can't take it. The PTA, I've had it enough of PTA. <laughs> so, um, so anyways, uh, the, the Friends of Bushwick Inlet Park had been already established. I think they got established in... 2009 but nothing really happened I think one time they had like a little fundraiser and so there was this little little cash pot that they used for the um a website and they had got a grant and made a website I think this was Laura Treciosis and people from Guap that did that I think Trina might have been involved again Dewey <laughs> just a lot of the same cast of characters in this neighborhood and but I was never involved with like neighborhood organizations, but um, it was the fall of 2014, I think. Um, people were thinking, well, what what's going on with this park? You know, where's our park? And they decided to revamp it. So they had a meeting, I think, in in October or something. And I went to it. Um, it was Trina. Laura was sort of anxious to put it off. You know, she didn't want to do it anymore. Um, and so we had this meeting. There's a few people there. I think 
maybe Ward was there, Karina. Anyways, um, I said that I, and they sort of asked me would I be interested in sort of, you know, trying to, you know, spearhead the reinvigoration of the Friends Bush with the Inlet Park. So I said, yes, I thought I did. I thought I wanted to stop doing the PTA and wanted to invest in the neighborhood. So I thought it would be a good transition for me in volunteering. And my daughter, my like I said, the youngest was graduating from high school. So what happened? So then we, we did, uh, I was going to do that. And then all of a sudden there was the fire just kind of timely in January of 2015. So like a couple months after we met a couple times, um, you know, there's this huge fire and that, you know, we say ignited the fight for, um, friends of Bush, uh, for the, for Bushwick Inlet Park because the fire was on the property of the last parcel of land that needed to be acquired to complete the 27 acre, you know, park that was promised in the 2005 rezoning. For me, <clears throat> I didn't really, you know, know a lot of the uh, you know, the sort of specifics of all the zonings and rezonings and, you know, this and how that, uh, how it all works uh, with promises and mapping. And, but it turned out that the park itself had been mapped as part of this um, waterfront master plan. And that was very important to the fight because it, it was declared back then in 2005, which was like, you know, 10 years before that, as a part of the rezoning, the promise for more open space and affordable housing and some other things was a part of that deal. Um, obviously, the the developers, you know, got their promise, and the the other side was, well, what, what about the public? Where's our Where's our end of the deal? And so, that was our um, rallying cry. And what happened with the fire was the owner of the city storage site, which was that last parcel of land, was going to, you know, put that property up for sale. And his, what the landlord, what the owner, Norm Brodsky, wanted to do was get his property rezoned for residential. And that would have, you know, quadrupled the value of his property. Because as, as of right, and what it was zoned for, back when they did the um, whole waterfront rezoning and what it was still zoned for was M3, which is heavy manufacturing. So I think it's like a two-story space and it has, you know, it, it can only be used for certain things. And so he, he thought, well, why shouldn't I get my property rezoned? Everybody else did. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that became the issue, one of our issues of many uh, the film, the, the film that you made when you went down into Midtown, Death Death for a Deal? Oh, Funeral, Funeral for a Deal. deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do we, so, yeah, we did a lot of things. Uh, it was a lot of fun. We enlisted everybody in the neighborhood. Um, the soccer league mm -hmm. was involved. We had a flash mob. I don't know if you saw that film or participated possibly. That was actually... Like, I couldn't believe we, we pulled it off. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that to get um, what the film was, it was called, it was a flash mob. And um, we got the soccer league and all the families and children to create an actual question mark on the field next to the city storage site. And it was filmed by drones up ahead. So you don't know what's going on. And then all these families and kids are sort of convening and then suddenly you realize they're creating this enormous question mark and it worked perfectly. And I organized that. It was my first production <laughs> like that I've ever produced. <laughs> and I, we were given, okay, so the soccer families now are really intense and they're very, I, I think the families are really busy. So they have a Monday night, which they're allowed to have the practices on. Uh, the field on Monday night. So all, a lot of the different teams come down there and um, the parents have practice night. And so um, I wanted the soccer league, having run it for 12 years, I thought they owed me a favor and I wanted them to have this flash mob because we had this vision that there would um, we would create a question mark on the field 
um, with all the kids and families. It would be amazing. And it turned out great because they actually have all the kids and families for a short amount, like two hour period on the field on Monday nights. It's like perfect. So, <laughs> but the, the coaches were really alarmed at the idea of taking up any time out of their practicing. Like, what do you mean? You don't want to fight for this park? This is great. You should want to do it. But they, there was a bit of a, um, they had to be convinced, but finally they were. Um, <laughs> so it was, um, and so we were given 20 minutes from to have them do this and some I mean I think it was probably you know wise to have a very strict amount of time because I made this this chart you know like minute by minute chart what would happen when and we had all these people stationed and you know created this um to create the shape of the question mark was going to be interesting so we looked at it kind of like a clock and it was going to be you know if you have um what is it this would be one, two, three, six, nine, and 12. And so everybody was stationed on the clock, on the field. And then we had a rope that would kind of create the curve. Mm -hmm. And then some people made the, um, the dot for the question mark. Um, anyways, it all worked. And that was pretty incredible. So we, you know, that was this great, um, one of the things we did that involved the community and make, gave them an, a really active, you know, participating role in, you know, being a, like part of a dot of a question mark of a film of a video, you know, that says, where's our park? And it's all the kids and stuff. Yeah. Um, so that was fun. And Acacia, I don't know if you want, do you want me to keep talking about all the things we did? I mean, it goes no, just on the highlights. and on. I mean, it seems like the achievement of, of actually getting the park is substantial because it could not have happened. And I, I'm curious as to how your organization, like your group made it happen. It seems like bringing in so much talent of the people in the group, you know, the know-how, bringing in the uh, elected officials into the conversation and really pushing for it. Because it seems like it could have not happened had it not been for, for Friends of Bush with Inland Park. Yeah, so um, I, I kind of organized um, the um how we did it into like toolbox and so what we did one of the things we knew we had to do is have the elected officials on our side because if you don't have them you know the the what's going to happen is the mayor is going to ask the council member so well what do the people want what do you what do you think and because for instance the um so if norm brodsky wanted to rezone his property for residential and it increases the value of the property by you know millions and millions of dollars the council member is going to be under a lot of pressure from developers from that owner you know there's um and how do you counter that and how because that happens all the time when um different areas are being rezoned the mayor or you know the city planning wants to make deals well we'll sweeten the deal with these developers we'll get all this affordable housing you know we'll throw in you know a recreational space where we'll you know we'll have a mechanism to fund the park and it'll be sort of like a brooklyn bridge park i mean there's all these you know forces at work to undermine just pure you know park for the people um and everything's a business deal, so you have to have your council member. You have to have them, have him or her in your, um, in your fight on your side. And so, in order to do that, you have to really show the council member that you've got the people on your side. Because it turns out, what I learned is all the elected say, "Well, what do, what do the people think? How many people are thinking this? How many people are standing behind you?" So one of our techniques, one of our, um, what we wanted to prove was we had hundreds of people, like, and that everybody was going to know about this issue, and it was going to be very public, and what our council member, our, our, our senators, what everybody thought, and where they stood on the issue was going to be very public. And so we, you know, could kind of, you know, force them to, you know, listen to us uh so 
So by having, say, the flash mob where you have every soccer family, which is hundreds of kids and hundreds of, you know, families involved, that's a great way of broadcasting this issue and demonstrating to the council member and the mayor and whoever else that, okay, we were able to do this with all these people. And it, you know, it's not just a couple people, it's hundreds of people. And then our first action was, and, and we were challenged by council member Steve Levin. He, um, so right after the fire, we were all getting together and we're like, how are we gonna do this? This is, you know, David and Goliath will never win. Um, the developers always win. Um, Steve, Lemba, Steve Levin, as soon as he was elected, he, you know, he didn't really know what was going on and he flipped and, you know, we, we knew he would be on our side, but we also knew that, you know, that he has a capacity for making deals and, you know, trying to look at what's, nah, making deals and doing, kind of making everybody happy. We didn't want that. Um, so he said, well, what you've got to do is you've got to have a rally down in City Hall and you've got to get at a minimum of 200 people there and it would be in the middle of the day um uh and this so so we said okay we have five weeks to plan this rally or six at the most um it was going to be on march 12th it was going to be a noon rally on like a tuesday or something and so that's what so and we had some people that on our team and a guy that had been working on Barack Obama, you know, he was like a Democratic organizer down south, and he, and so he's one of those early on grassroots guys, and he was explaining to us, well, what you got to do is, and this is what we did, is when with grassroots like this, you have to count your people. It's not enough to say, yeah, I think, I think I could probably get, you know, ten people, mm, you know, eight. 10, 12 people, I could probably get them. And he would say, well, who are those people? And let's write their, we gotta write their names down. And so what, so we were starting to meet every week and with this goal of having a rally with 200 people um, in the middle of the day on a, you know, a work day and everything. So what we did every week was like, we counted. It's like, okay, we have, um, where, where is our base? And we have schools, we have um, some churches, we've got all these, uh, you know, organizations, you know, NAG and GWAP and NCA and the Boat Club and you know, the Soccer League. So who in those organizations can we tap to tell them to get the word out? So it became this, you know, spreading um, tool of activism, activism where you, you look at your partners and then you count and then people would come back and so each week we were sort of counting. So we had a big group, we we're meeting every week. So it's like, okay, um, you know, Phil, you know, how many people can have you secured? And he's like, well, I know I have six, but I think I can get up to 10. And then, so we were counting our people like that. And then we were getting this momentum. We were starting to have, you know, some pretty cool um, publicity things. We were doing the, um, you know, where you uh, you project, you make projections on the walls. We were doing that, you know, with images. We had these stickers we were starting to put up everywhere. So anyway, so this rally, that was going to be our, I think it was a very defining point, and it proved to Steve Levin, our council member, that we were serious and that we could organize. So the, the rally came along, and down at City Hall, we had more than 400 people show up. It was the most people that had ever, ever shown up for any rally ever during the middle of the day. We won. Woohoo! And so <laughs> we thought, well, you know, Mayor de Blasio is going to listen to us. And he didn't come out or anything. But what it did show was to our council member, our assemblymen, our, our state senators, our congresswomen, you know, all these other people, our borough president and deputy but president um of brooklyn that you know okay you better watch us <laughs> and it showed norm brodsky you know the owner that we are gonna fight um you know he met with us so anyways so, so that was one thing is mobilizing people 
And the other thing was, you know, working with the elected officials. And we had started having, um, you know, we, and, and the community board was very important. So you have the elected officials, but then the community board um, learned all these things, like about having resolutions, the, those documents that say whereas and therefore. And so we had this resolution that was signed by the um, community board. Um, and then all the elected officials signed their own letter saying the same thing that basically was saying they would never agree to rezoning that property um, for, you know, for residential or anything else. So that was the first key, in a way, to um, securing the ability for the city to even purchase the property should they want to. Because if it was residential, they would never be able to afford it. So that was the key. We secured the more or less affordability of the property. And then, so then that was one thing. That was sort of two things. So we've got the elected officials. We're maintaining the... We're maintaining the value of the property to be M3, which is the manufacturing. Um, and the other thing, one of the other things that happened, and we were very lucky for this, is um, we, uh, what happened was Mayor de Blasio was rolling out his mandatory inclusionary housing and his quality for, for uh, his zoning for quality and affordability, ZQA. And what those were was these initiatives to go out and into neighborhoods, say like East New York, and sort of rezone what was once industrial, just like here, and create affordable housing, create um, business, you know, incentives, and basically, you know, bring in gentrification. That's what's really going to happen, and and it would be the same thing out there. There's all kinds of factories that have been. Um, sort of laying fallow. They used to be very busy. They used to even make shoes. I'm in the shoe biz. They used to make shoes, clothing, all kinds of stuff out there. And they don't do that anymore at all. It's just these factory buildings, just property sitting there very, um, you know, that they've owned forever that used to be very um, under, you know, low value. And then if you rezone it to um, be residential, suddenly all those property owners or developers are going to be, you know, really profit mm -hmm. a lot. So it's controversial. So, and what happens then, of course, is there's this domino effect of, you know, rezoning and um, gentrification, and then there's all this displacement that could possibly happen. And this question of what is affordable. Oh, we're going to build affordable housing. Well, the housing we have right now is affordable. That's why we live here. This is what the people of East New York and places are suggesting. It's like, why do we need affordable affordable housing when we have it? You know, as soon as you come in and build affordable housing, our affordable housing is going to go away. So those are real arguments. And um, again, you know, the city is coming and they're saying, well, we're going to make all these promises, all this affordable housing, all these nice parks, all these nice schools. We're going to do all this nice stuff. And... Um, so right, so Mayor de Blasio is going to every single community board in the city to talk about this. And so he has a whole team of, you know, um, uh, rezoning and city planning experts that have these uh, PowerPoints and they go to all the city, all the community boards and they do this big rollout. Well, we started showing up at, at these two and we would make statements about broken promises and our rallying cry became broken promises as, and where's our park? You know, it's like our, our, so we made this very public and very present argument <laughs> on a, a great um, platform at all the community boards. We didn't go to every single one, but anyone that was significant, especially in Brooklyn, and made the um, argument that, you know, the city, what they're doing is one mayor makes promises yeah, a couple mayors layer, later, those promises aren't fulfilled and, you know, the developers are making off like bandits and the people get nothing. And it's, a, it's really bad what's going on. And you should see what's going on in Bushwick Inlet Park and Greenpoint and Williamsburg. All these people are really rich now. They've had tax abatements. It's outrageous. We don't even have our park. It's just a big industrial wasteland. We have 
less, you know, the lowest of open space ratios in the city. And so we made a big statement. And so these people from the city who were supposed to be doing this, they'd see us come in and they were like rolling their eyes. And so it's like, oh God, here we go again. Because it's a very compelling argument and it's true. It, it, it's a big problem. You know, this rezoning for the developers and then making all these promises and displacing people and not really having the big picture completely worked out. Um, anyway, so they got, they, so we started doing that every, you know, like a couple times a month at least. <laughs> and we were getting in, that was when the DNA info was around. So we, it was great. We were constantly being reported on in DNA Info. Um, so that was another thing. So that so now we're working on a city level, you know. So we're working with people, neighbors. Um, we're working with our local officials, and now we start branching out, and we're working citywide on big issues called like about broken promises and um, and. And, you know, this idea of uh, continuity between um, leadership in the mayor's office and stuff. Um, out of that did come something called, like, the Broken Promises Bill. And there is a mechanism now because of this that was um, – a bill was sponsored by Letitia James, uh, our public advocate, um, to um, – um, Espinal, Councilman Espinal, and the uh, Speaker of the Council, uh, Mark Viverito, and they sponsored this bill. It's called the Broken Promises Bill, and they supposedly they created a mechanism by which promises made during any kind of rezoning like this would be logged, and then that would be charted, and they would have to be updated with the progress, and so that there was a mechanism for tracing and monitoring these promises that is now a law which is cool that's incredible yeah that was something that came out of our broken promises rallying cry yeah. that was cool um and so all these things culminated together and you got your park yeah and we also had expertise i mean there's another thing in the toolbox we had amazing lawyers we had this guy adam pullmutter and he um long-term neighborhood advocate I don't know if you've interviewed him. I'm interviewing him at the end of the month. Oh, you, yeah, yeah, he'll be amazing. He did so much. Um, but he, um, and and he was working with the Corp Council of the City. He knew a lot of people there. He, um, but we, he brought in other experts on, on land use and zoning. And now <laughs> there was this thing called the Miller Doctrine, and I don't exactly know what it is how to explain it but it had to do with um the value of a property would have to if it was in a rezoning if it was part of something pu public then it couldn't be it was it was about eminent domain and how to value eminent domain so say this everyone's clamoring for bushwick inlet park for the city to come and buy, you know, just take the property by eminent domain from the owner, um, which is what he wanted to do. But then the question would be, how do you value that property? And he was betting on that he could argue that the property was worth much more because of the adjacent properties. And so this thing called the Miller Doctrine was this um, now sort of a legal uh, document that explained how the property should be viewed and valued and I just called it Dr. Miller <laughs> well we'll bring in Dr. Miller because <laughs> I'm not I don't I'm not super good at all that lawyer stuff um but and then we had these hill memos so we had like so we have so now you've got we've got the people you've got the electeds now we've got the citywide argument about broken promises and and then behind the scenes we've got you know, really smart people working on uh, the legal right. avenues and trying to convince the city that it would be okay to, you know, pressure them to go for eminent domain. Uh, so anyway, so there was that. And, and then we, we, you know, 
Um, so those, those are the toolboxes. And we kept going on with our advocacy. And we did a lot of things. The, the mayor plunked down a $100 million offer at one point for the property. He said it's 90 days for 60 days. Mm-hmm. So we had a, a countdown clock. And every day we'd go down, turn clock. And then the owner had his own his own um, countdown where he put it up for bid with Cushman and Wakefield. So then we took that. We had a big press conference where we offered $100 million to Cushman and Wakefield, you know, <laughs> for the property um, on their last day of their offer or whatever they're calling it. And uh, we had camp out in the park. We had... So we had our uh, Congressman Woman Maloney, uh, Carolyn Maloney, and we had um, the borough president. We slept out in tents on the property. And that was a great Greenpoint story because after Occupy, um, you know, the Occupy movement, they said that nobody could camp out in parks. It became a really strict law in our city because they didn't want that. You remember they had that big tent city? And they took it all down and they made this big ordinance that nobody could do that. So then we are setting up tents. And this is an idea that came from the, um, the Brooklyn Borough President, Eric L. Adams. This was his idea. And before we did the camping out, we had, we had this really neat um, seminar on the history of the waterfront. We had Daniel Campo who wrote... Um, this book it's called accidental playground we had adam perlmutter who did all the legal work for the when we were fighting against the power plants and it was just really fascinating but it started pouring rain um <laughs> we have all these tents um so we're setting up the tents and uh suddenly the rain is stopping it looks like maybe we're gonna be able to make this happen and and suddenly the police show up and they're like you can't be here so fortunately, Eric L. Adams <clears throat> used to be the police lieutenant for the 94th Precinct. So he knew everybody, and he went off and he talked to them. He's like, guys, it's okay. I'm here. <laughs> I'm the I don't know. He, he said something that convinced them it would be okay if we slept out. And so, but that was a great Greenpoint story. Like our borough president had been the, you know, chief at 94th Precinct, so... We were allowed this nice little thing to happen, and um, yeah, so we kept going, rallies. Yeah. You know, we did the funeral for the deal. Yeah. We um, we did lots of um, we. You know, my husband Dewey is also a uh, producer, filmmaker. So he's got he's got all the editing equipment to make make these films mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, great historian experts on our team. Steve Chesler, who is the co-leader of the Friends of Bushwick Inlet Park, is really deeply involved with all the issues. And he's gotten more since the park. I think he was sort of involved, and then he got really involved. And so he's on the community board now, um, and he's Transmitter Park. He's become a park expert, and he sort of is the one who um, does a lot of this social media stuff and our media person. We have had people on our um, team who are really good writers, so they were able to write press releases. Um, a lot of talent. Yeah, we had a lot of talent mm-hmm. and a lot of enthusiasm. I think one of the most important things, I mean, that made our fight easier was that there was a real timeline mm-hmm. because the property was going to get sold. Mm-hmm. It was going to get sold to the city or it's going to get sold to a private developer somebody was going to buy it and the owner said well I really you know he had this fire he lived there he wanted to move you know he wanted money and so in that sense we knew it was going to be over so it kind of you're like well we can keep going I don't know if if it had been you know some of the other fights that you have in neighborhoods just are ongoing fights and it's hard to keep the enthusiasm and the momentum and the creativity focused on that I know when you think about the incinerator and things like those those sorts of issues that just go on and on forever. It's really nice that you had a, a final point. You knew it was going to be done. Yeah, well, some other successful fights in the neighborhood also 
you know, they did have beginning and the end, you know, there was resolution, like the power plant that they were going to put on the waterfront there that they didn't put, or, you know, the waste transfer station stuff, it's still part of things, but really um, big fights. No, it's such an interesting story, though. Yeah. And, you know, now, of course, we still have to do stuff. We don't have a park for real. I mean, it's just... <laughs> what, do you do? what do you have to do now? <laughs> well, and so our advocacy is trying to get the city to fund the park. It turns out um, our park is like, you know, about six different parcels of land, and they were all bought at different times. So they're all on their own timeline. They all have to be remediated, um, you know, to... You know, they, we don't know how polluted they are, how toxic they are, some of these spot, um, parcels of land. One parcel just got remediated, you know, for like $19 million or something. You know, it's like 1.8 acres. Um, and that's just a tiny little thing. So, and each, so each little parcel has its own process, which involves an RFP for the design, for the remediation, for this and all these things. And our big concern was, well, what is the final park, park supposed to look like? How can you design a park that is, well, first of all, you're not even allowed to design a park unless it's fully funded. So each parcel, this is interesting, each parcel of land has to be fully funded before they can design it. So, for instance, we were surprised and pleased when the mayor said that 50 Kent he gave money to design, uh, to build the park um, at 50 Kent and also the Motiva, which kicked in, meant that they could have a designer. But unless he had given, you know, $18 million for those two parcels of land, they'd just be sitting there. Mm-hmm. And then our advocacy would be, oh, we need money to do this. Mm-hmm. Well, he wants a you know he wants to have some sort of legacy before he leaves office that he because he he did put 168 million dollars in the city storage so he wants something else which is great um but then what happens is each parcel of land once it's funded then they'll have a design you know they'll have an rfp to bring in landscape designers and do all of it um and they have a strict timeline process and uh, they have to keep to it. They have a public scoping, you know, all these little things that they have to do to um, produce that park. But so you have a 27-acre park. You have a soccer field in one part. Then you have this, like, 1.8-acre, you know, little green spot here. And then over, you know, uh, down the street a few blocks away, you have the Motiva site, which is the part that's around the inlet itself, Um and you know they're hundreds of yards away from each other and how are we going to have all these parcels relate and then in the middle of it you've got the bay side which has buildings and oil tanks and all that stuff has to be removed there's a huge legacy of um, pollution there and the city will want to make the polluting parties responsible so it's very you have to be very careful anything that happens on that property that nothing is disturbed because if there's lawsuits and stuff you know they don't want to disturb any evidence and they want so so anyways so there's so we do have um regular cabinet meetings we call it with our elected officials um to talk about ways to encourage the city to fund it or where other sources of revenue can come from um and so and for on our part because we're advocating for a really world-class you know amazing park and that's uh big ask you know because parks department doesn't have a lot of money and they don't want to build something they can't maintain so and because of climate change and all this new thinking about resiliency and waterfront park design and stuff, we, we want it to be innovative and, and contemporary in that way. But we, and we want it in like a holistic design. So we don't, so we've been having these envisioning series to sort of educate the public on, you know, just park ideas. Um, whether it's environmental justice or it's the history of 
park planning or um, interesting um, new design thinkings about resiliency and climate change and um, ecological habitats and stuff like that. So we had a series of that. We're having another. We'll probably keep going. <laughs> yeah, it just goes on and on. Well, thank you for sharing the story with me. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to share about Greenpoint? Yeah. I, well, you know, of course, it, it's changing so much. Mm-hmm. I think we're right at the cusp where it's going to seem really changed after, I don't know how long it'll take them to build all the buildings along the waterfront from Quay down to commercial. Mm-hmm. And they've already started. But that's going to be sort of a curtain of high rises. And I think our neighborhood, people like it because it does have a feeling of, I always said it was big sky country. Because you can go out and you're not surrounded by tall buildings. And you can see in the wind, there's wind and air, even though much of the air is probably very polluted. (laughs) Um, So I think, um, I hope that the nature of uh, just the basic physicality of it I don't know I hope we can still retain it I mean I think people like living here because it is a cozy you know town small town where everybody knows each other um, it's really friendly I think people are used to teaming up on issues there's a lot of community involvement um, I think the challenge for us as a group is to you know, get the new people, I mean, involved. Right. We're sort of, uh, a lot of our people are, have been long-term neighbors and stuff. But what we're going to be doing in the next year is um, kind of restructuring our organization and figuring out how to, you know, really um, branch out. And so we'll have, like, real committees, you know, gardening committee, you know, and really, you know, give access to people, mm-hmm. hopefully that want more engagement. I don't know. (laughs) Sounds like you've done enough. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Catherine. You're welcome.